certified financial planner, Christopher Calandra, is an innovative, comprehensive, informative, and cutting-edge podcast that discusses financial topics ranging from personal finance, economics, politics, and personal growth. Simply Financial will cover intriguing and thought-provoking questions so that the listener can simply increase their financial IQ. Welcome to episode number 11 of the Simply Financial podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Calandra, and I appreciate you joining me for this episode. I have with me today a special guest, Eric Milhorn, an elder care attorney operating in the villages. So thank you, Eric. I appreciate you having me. So your firm is Milhorn? Elder Law Planning Group. Elder Law Planning Group. And so could you tell us a little bit about the firm, what you specialize in, and what you do for clients? Yes, absolutely. Thank you again for having me. We're um, what's called an elder law planning firm. A lot of people don't truly understand what elder law would mean. Elder law means that you've covered the three different areas, estate planning, which we'll discuss in a moment, pre-planning, wills, trust, power of attorneys. Then we have what's called long-term care benefit planning, where we apply for VA benefits, nursing home benefits, special needs planning, guardianship, and then what's called trust and estate administration. We've been so fortunate in that we've been in the villages since 1992. Over that time, we've been able to grow with the villages. So I think we have over 20 paralegals, but most of the paralegals work in the long-term care planning and trust and state administration. I truly believe we continue to grow because we do not charge for questions or consultations. Okay. So somebody wouldn't come to you and your firm for family law, divorce, um, set up an LLC, set up a business. That's not your specialty. No, it's not our specialty. We do, not, do nothing that's considered adversarial law. So anything okay. that where people are fighting, we have to refer them out. I thought people became an attorney to be adversarial. Not us. That's no? my, I'm so happy to say that we do not do any type of adversarial law. I've never heard that term before. Is that a real thing or did you make that up? No, it's a real thing. So family law, um, criminal law, all these things are adversarial. And you don't do like personal injury either? Would that be considered adversarial? No, that's, well, I mean, it is adversarial because you're working with appraisers and different things like okay. that. And there's attorneys who love that. That's not my thing. I want to make sure our clients always leave happy. So in my 25 years of experience speaking with clients, because there's so many attorneys out there and there's so many areas of law, how should somebody looking to get information, we're going to dig into this in a little bit more, but how does somebody that's looking to get a will and estate planning determine what type of an attorney do they go to? For example, I know lots of times I'll meet with a client and say, oh, you ought to have a will estate plan. It could be... Simple, could be medium-sized, complexity, could be very complex. And they'll be like, well, I'll, I'll talk to the person that just did the closing on my house and I'll get it done. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that in all the areas of law and the specialties, including this new thing I learned, adversarial law? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I recommend, if someone's going to a new city and they're looking for an attorney, I always ask, check with their financial advisor and or um, their friend's financial advisor because there's always going to be one or two attorneys that in the area are known as estate planning specialists. And then what I would ask, if someone's older on in life, and we'll talk again in a moment when you should do estate planning, but if you're older in life, you should be looking for an attorney or a firm that's going to be able to cover three different areas, estate planning, long-term care benefit planning, and the trust in the state administration. What I think our clients are getting with our firm is a support system for their family. So whether it's, we're talking about making a change to a trust or they have questions about looking at a living facility and how to plot, pay for those, um, that care, or their family needs help walking through the administration process, the firm's going to cover them and their family in every situation. Great, great. So you mentioned a moment ago something that caught my attention, and that is if you move to a new city. Right now, 
I'm in the Florida office of Elliott Wealth Management. We have clients in Florida, we have clients in Connecticut and elsewhere spread through the United States. But in Florida, you have a lot of people that move into this area in retirement. This is one of the preeminent retirement communities in the country. So can you talk about how important it is a state plan-wise relative to the state you're in versus the state you might have lived in earlier in your life? Absolutely. So there's certain things that are unique to the state. Real estate's an example, family law is an example, and estate planning is an example of state-specific documents. As an example, in Florida, Florida has homestead rules. So there's certain documents like the power of attorney that must be updated to include the homestead language. Also, Florida has amazing um, long-term care benefits that will actually help contribute or pay for the cost of care. But in order for us to apply for those benefits, the power of attorney must be updated to include that language. So is it true, though, that let's say I live in Connecticut and then I move to Florida and I don't see you, I'm not smart enough to come see you, which I would, and then I pass away, is my will in Connecticut good or am I going to pass away without a will under the law? Okay, so I kind of back, the good thing about Florida is Florida rewards pre-planning. Florida wants to attract wealth, and I'll give you an example of that in a moment. But on the other side of that, Florida is always looking for a way to tax a mistake. So the power of attorney, not to go back to that, but the power of attorney for all five parts of the power of attorney is right around $100. But if someone becomes disabled in Florida and they don't have a good power of attorney, the state of Florida is going to force what's called a guardianship action, a court-appointed representative, but that comes at an average cost of about $3,500. Okay. So you ask the question, who are the most most likely be the person not to have a good power of attorney? It's people who usually can't afford a couple thousand dollars, but that's what happens. Okay. Same thing with a will. If someone does nothing, the fees can be easily over 5 to 6%. If someone has a last will and testament and they do nothing further, the fees again can be 5 to 6%. Where if they simply doesn't need beneficiaries or they use a trust in Florida, okay. the fees are non-existent and creditors get nothing. Right. But it requires doing some additional planning to make sure we've avoided fees, delaying creditors. So it's fair to say, at the simplest sense, that if, if you move and you become a resident of a new state, you should have an elder care attorney or an attorney from that state review the documents to make sure that they are up to date now that you're living in a new state, in our example, Florida. That's correct. Right. And what I'm going to recommend... If- if I can make the recommendation, you don't just want to go to an attorney that does wills and power of attorney. You want to go to a true and estate planning firm because what they're going to look at is how do we avoid all fees for your family? How do we avoid the delay? How do we avoid creditors? How do we get you set up where you would qualify for benefits in the event someone's becoming disabled? And that's the difference between an estate planning firm, a law firm, and just someone who prepares a will or trust. All right. So going back, and this is just very basic stuff. What's the difference between someone saying, I need to have a will, Mm -hmm. and someone saying, I need to have an estate plan? Is there a difference in the marketplace, like in consumers' mind? If someone says, I got a will, is that the same as an estate plan? Or if somebody says, I did an estate plan, is that just a will, or is it something more than that? It's so, so much different. So if you call contact any attorney, they won't most likely say that they'll prepare a will for you. But a will is not estate planning. Okay. So here's the great thing about Florida. Florida does not have a beneficiary inheritance tax. So it doesn't matter where any of the beneficiaries reside, they will not pay an inheritance tax. But in lieu of that, Florida has a transfer fee, what they call probate fee. It's a fee that can go from 5 to 6%. There's a delay of up to 9 to 12 months. And all end-of-life creditors get paid before the family. So when you go to an attorney and just say, I want a will, and they give you a will, you've not done estate planning because we have not afford, avoid the fees delaying creditors. A true estate planning attorney is going to make sure we've avoided 
all fees, all delay, and, as cre and creditors as much as possible. So that's a big difference between uh, doing a will and doing um, an estate plan. And if I could use one example, Florida's homestead rule says if the house is going solely to children through a will, it does not go through what's called a full administration, the 9- to 12-month process. Okay. Rather, it only goes through what's called a summary administration, which only takes four to six weeks. But here's the interesting thing. If someone goes online or they go to an attorney that doesn't understand the homestead rules, if their will lists a charity, church, or friend, they lose the homestead exemption. So now one of the house, one of the larger assets that was protected from creditors is now subjected to creditors solely because someone did not go to an estate plan. So that would be an example of a common mistake you see practicing. That's correct. And you okay. see that with LegalZoom or someone who goes online to prepare well on their own. Okay. So let's talk about, and I know this isn't your target market, but if you're a millennial, you're in your 20s, 30s, starting out in life, starting out in your career, um, do you need an estate plan or is a will... Okay. Acceptable. So if I can break it in. So we have the documents for the client, which are the, what are called the incapacity documents, power of attorney for financial, medical, what's called pre-need, the HIP authorization, which is a release of medical privacy law and a living will. Okay. Those things are for the client. Anyone over the age of 18 should have one. Very easy and inexpensive. Now, when we get to estate planning, and we're talking about a millennial, someone who's just getting started in their career, the time they need to do estate planning is when they have minor children. Right. Because use an example, and you see this all the time. If someone has an IRA, 401k, 43b, 457, and they name their spouse first and children second, and both of them pass away, the question is who's going to be in control of those funds? It may not be the person that they want. Also, right. do they want the child to receive their share at age 18, and do they want those funds to affect their child's eligibility for scholarships, student loans, or financial aid? So the time that someone really needs to do estate planning is when they have minor children. Okay. So you just gave, I think, an example of my next question, which is what are the basic must-haves for everyone? And so the basics are, correct me if I'm wrong, a will and those other health-related documents or you said incapacity-related well, documents? Right. So first, we always protect the client first, the client's family second. So the incapacity documents are getting five things, the financial power of attorney, the medical power of attorney, uh, Pretty guardianship provisions in case the court gets involved, the HIPAA authorization, which is a release of medical privacy law and living will. Those five things will protect the client and their spouse in every situation during the time they're alive, the disabled. Okay. Following their passing, then we're going to look at the transfer of assets between the family. Now, everyone relies on a will, but it's usually the documents there only as a backup. Right. If we've done everything properly in our estate planning, the will will not be utilized. Okay, good. Right. And so those documents you mentioned, they're specific to the state of Florida, but is it fair to say in most other states, and you're probably not a member in the bar in all the states in the United States, but that would hold true for listeners that are in other states. So you're going to need those types of documents. The names may change. Mm -hmm. The language internal to the document may change. But those are pretty basic and universal in all the states. That's correct. All right, great. But if I could point out one thing, and, and this is, um, you'll see off this in Connecticut and the New England states, a lot of people prepare a will thinking the will covers every asset they own. But what people have to keep in mind is the will does not cover any asset with the designated beneficiary. That's right. So Good. You'll, you'll see these guardianship provisions or provisions saying the child's share will be held for their age until a certain age. But in reality, anything with a um, beneficiary designation, a retirement account, insurance policy, or even annuity, those are going to go to the child at age 18 if okay. the child's name is a beneficiary. Right, which actually, you're you're always one step ahead of me, <laughs> right? No, that's all good. Is Because we see all the time, as we're working with clients, we're dealing with lots of accounts that have beneficiaries, as you said, traditional IRAs, Roth IRAs, 401ks, annuities, life insurance, and the list goes on. 
And we are very focused on making sure that we have accurate, up-to-date beneficiaries, including contingent beneficiaries, because it's really important. And that's our view. Can you just speak to the importance of having beneficiary designations on those types of accounts and to have a record, a written record of that designation with you and or other professionals you may be working with? So think of it this way. A will is instruction to the court. If the court gets involved, there's fees of 5 to 6%, up to 5 to 6%, a delay of 9 to 12 months, and all creditors get paid before the children and the family. So the way you would avoid probate is one of two different options. First option is by designated beneficiary, like you said, and I'll go into that more specific. The second option is using a trust. Now, if someone has a very basic situation where it's a traditional marriage, first marriage, and their children are healthy and no liability or disability issues, they can name their spouse first and the children second. And by doing that, you'd avoid all fees delaying creditors because the will would not be involved to distribute that asset. But there are several situations where a beneficiary designation will not be sufficient. First, if someone's in a blended family. If they designate their spouse in a blended family on an IRA, insurance policy annuity, they've in essence disinherited their children if they pass away before their spouse. Right. Second, if a child's going through a lawsuit, divorce, bankruptcy, foreclosure, and they have medical bills, upon their passing, that money could be subjected to the child's creditors. Next, if the child's disabled or the child's receiving state or federal assistance, by naming the child as a direct beneficiary, you could make the child could end up losing the eligibility for that program. So there's several situations where a beneficiary designation is good for avoiding probate, but doesn't really meet the needs of the family. And that's when we have to consider something like a trust. Right. And that's part of the consultation that individuals and families should have with their elder care attorney is everything we talked about, but also accounts that wouldn't go through the will, these beneficiary accounts, to make sure that there's a thinking through of the process of who should be named beneficiary primary beneficiary, contingent beneficiary, and that's part of the plan, right? Absolutely. How often do you see people that come in to your office for a consultation that either don't have beneficiaries or have different beneficiaries on the accounts and it's just kind of either not done or done haphazardly? It's very common. And that's why we recommend we talk every three to five years with our clients to review the documents they have in place for them and their family. But, you know, no one wants to deal with this, their own mortality. And sitting across the table with an estate attorney or elder law attorney kind of brings to the forefront their mortality. Yes. And so it makes them address uncomfortable situations. Also, you may not get along with your children. You may not want your children to be part of your finances. And so I understand a lot of these issues are uncomfortable, but they're things that need to deal with. We need to deal with because if they do not, the courts can get involved and the court most likely will appoint someone that they do not want administering their estate. So is that part of the motivation? You say, look, if, if you don't address these things, some judge or court or some legal part. authority uh, who doesn't know you, your family, background, history, your priorities, values, they're going to be making the decisions for you. That's correct. That sounds pretty scary. I don't think I would, I know I would not want that for myself. Um, how do you feel about Openness, And I had a family situation where a relative of mine was looking to make a significant change in who they wanted. Um, they're single. Um, was making a significant change in who they wanted um, to be the heir to their estate. Significant change. And they wanted to keep it secret mm-hmm. and not share with the parties what was going on. And I don't want you to comment specifically on that because you don't know all the information. But in general, 
how would you typically guide your clients in terms of openness versus secretiveness as to the planning that's being done and who ultimately might be in decision-making authority if there's a crisis or be a beneficiary, inherit money from a person or a family? And I know everyone hates this word from an attorney, but it does depend. Uh, <laughs> everyone here hates it. But that's here. good. We're about 15, 16 minutes in and you haven't said right. it before. That's that's why I had you on. I mean, right. you're the best. So, all right. So it depends. So okay. it depends and on what? It, d- it depends on the client's um, capacity. If we're dealing with a marginal capacity client, we're going to get want to get outside parties involved. Okay. If I'm dealing with someone in their 60s and 70s, they clearly have no issues, no capacity issues. Right. They're going to stand up. They can write out their um, ex- expression of their wishes on the paper where I can get that into a document. It's not an issue. But what we need to do is get their representative, and that could be a family member, a friend. It could be an organization like okay. your organization or their law firm. We need to make sure that they're involved so they understand that if something happens, they're going to be able to t- get ahead of the family's ire. Right. It, it, it's not uncommon. I know people come in all the time and they say, you've probably never heard this before. Or you're probably surprised I'm disinheriting my children. I'm not surprised. <laughs> we probably disinherit over 10 children a week. It's not uncommon. But we just need to make sure, part of the estate planning is to make sure that the estate's not going to be contested and that the representative's not going to be held up for years. Okay. So we focused on a little bit of like the money part of things and avoiding probate costs and making it easier. But now we're touching a little bit more on the family social part of things. Is it fair to say that proper planning, somebody that sits with an elder care attorney, spends the time and the money to do things right and think through what they want and try and think through the various contingencies, sets up the family for less strife in an emergency or upon someone's passing because there's a lot of fighting over money and stuff after someone dies. And sometimes there's bad actors, but sometimes it's just, I thought mom wanted this and the other sibling thinks, no, 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 mom wanted that. And they have the noblest of intentions, but it could devolve into just an unbelievable family feud. So isn't part of this planning, I'm answering my own question, isn't part of the planning you do not just financial and not just to keep the courts out of it, but also to help keep the peace family-wise? Can you talk about that a little bit? 100%. So one question we're going to ask, do we want one or two family members to serve as representatives? As an example, if someone has two children and they get along you fairly well, it's better to have both of them. Now, if we have two children and they've never been able to get along, they've never been able to agree on anything, it may make sense if one of them is, as an example, a CPA, if she is a CPA or a licensed attorney, it may make sense because they have an obligation. They can lose their license if they don't follow right. the person's wishes. But often, if we have a situation where we know there's going to be strife, that we're going to look at a third-party administrator. Yeah, they're paying a small fee for that, but it will avoid a lot of headache for the family. Okay. And even basic things like, you know, what the, the house that the children were raised in, what you would want to have happen to the house. If the parents don't tell the children, the children don't really know what the wishes are because it hasn't been planned for, put in writing. And then there's the unknown that often could lead to stress for... I'll give you a couple of examples. People think about the home and accounts, but it's really over almost things that you would consider ridiculous. We had a family fight over a vacuum cleaner and spent thousands of dollars over a vacuum cleaner. Really? I've been deposed and had four attorneys sitting around the table, people fighting over medals, military medals. And I'm not downplaying medals, okay. but they had no really monetary value. Right. And so it's so important that we've, we've dealt with those things. If there's a family member who's sentimental, we'll make sure that they're getting a specific item. 
The interesting thing is most of the disagreements come from outside, usually daughter-in-laws or son-in-laws, who now think they want you know, mom, mom-in-law's um, ring as an example. So then the importance in part of doing this estate planning is to let everybody know to the largest extent possible what your wishes are mm-hmm. when you pass away so that there's less likely to have this kind of Absolutely. dissent in the family. It still might happen, mm-hmm. and it probably still does happen, right. But it's better than just having it be a complete blank slate for anyone to interpret anything they want after the fact. All right. And to give you an idea, that um, the documents are very clinical. It's an expression of someone's wishes. But we also provide what's called an end-of-life planner. It's a 21-page form that goes through essentially any type of -of end-of-life consideration. So if the client would like to express their wishes or deal with something that they know will be a sore topic later on, it's a good place for them to write out the expression of their wishes. So through this conversation, it makes complete sense, and I would think the listeners are, all right, I need to do state planning. It might be basic if I'm you know, younger, might be more evolved as you become more affluent, as you become older, if you have complicated family issues. It makes complete sense. But why don't people do an estate plan? There's lots of people that don't do it or don't review it. Why do you think that is? Are they afraid? Are they ignorant? Is it procrastination? Is it what you talked about, confronting your mortality? Why don't people do something that is obviously in their best interest and their heir's best interest? Because nobody likes to pay taxes. Nobody really wants to get involved in the courts. So, I mean, these are all things people go out of their way to avoid. But in this instance, they often don't do what is in their best interest and their extended family's best interest. So why is that in your opinion? Well, so you touched on it. One, they don't want to deal with their own mortality. One, they don't think they're going to ever die. And that's reality. Second, they're worried about the fees that are going to be charged. And then they're going to not know if they can provide the answer. We have so many people saying, I just don't know what to do. And that's the thing I'm asking. And I give them easy questions that they can answer that they have to go home and consider. All right, if my minor child is left without a parent, who's going to serve? Who's then going to be the custodian to make sure the guardian's dealing with that. But it's something that, one, they, again, because they don't think they're going to die, and then they're having to look around the family, and the family may be flawed, who do they appoint? Aren't so, all families flawed? Every family's <laughs> flawed in some way. So, <laughs> so, so part of it, you think, is just a reluctance to spend the money, aside from the other mm-hmm. reasons that I said. One of the, the phrases I've begun using quite a bit that I stole from somebody else, so I did not coin the phrase, is... Uh, it's easier to prevent a problem than to solve one. Mm-hmm. And that also applies to it's less expensive to avoid a problem than to solve one. Right. And so I don't like to pay attorneys. I don't like, you know, I'm cheap like everyone else. But if you pay for valuable service, you're saving your family, your estate, your heirs more money in anguish. It's money that's well spent. That if makes sense to me. That, absolutely. Yeah. Well, as an example, if you were doing a, a full estate plan, you have someone right. in a decent um, estate or addressing every issue, they could end up paying around $1,000. But here's the thing. If someone become, passes away and they don't have an estate plan, the fee that the state's going to allow the attorney to receive, it's a statutory fee, is up to 2%. Okay. Sorry, 2% of a million dollars is 20000 versus $1,000 at the most they would have paid the attorney to set up the entire plan and to make sure that their wishes are followed. Okay. So like you said, the pre-planning is not for them, it's for their family. Right. Okay. And so when is it too late to do estate planning? We talked about millennials getting started earlier and we're talking 
somewhat clinically about, okay, you move to a new state, you're healthy, your wife is healthy, and so you're going to do an estate plan. And that's all well and good, and it's super important. But people do procrastinate and not get it done. But then there's a crisis. Something happens. There's a significant change, maybe health-wise. Maybe somebody passes away. Something happens with one of their children. So when is it too late to come see an elder care attorney and devise an estate plan? As someone... As long as someone is able to understand the legal implications of their actions and understand what the plan they're putting in place, it's not too late. But we'll wait, have people that will wait where someone's in hospice or someone is in a nursing home, a skilled nursing facility, not just for rehab, but permanently. In that case, it's usually too late. And that's when the state's going to impose their own rule, and it's usually not the rule that the family would have wanted. Okay. So there is a point when it is too late. Right, yes. So when the attorney and then the notary are to the point where we understand the person's not going to be able to understand the legal implications of their actions and the plan that we're putting in place, then it's too late. Okay. You mentioned power of attorney. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's a really, really important document. It's the most important document. I mean, that's central. If you can only have one thing, it's the POA. Well, think about this. The power of attorney is the only document that comes into effect during the client's life. Right. Everything else is for the benefit of their family. So how long does the power of attorney last? Because I am not an expert in this, far Mm -hmm. from it. But if, if, let's say, we did a power of attorney, and then is it good for a year, three years, five years? Like if I tried to take it into a hospital or a bank, um, do sometimes you run into problems? Is there a time limit on it or um, an expiration date? There's not really an expiration date. And Florida has a rule that a financial and medical institution must accept it or they can be held liable if they do not. Oh, terrific. Is that common in many states? I'm not sure. I I just do not know. Um, but at, periodically, Florida will make a change. So as an example, the HIPAA authorization, the release of medical privacy law, come into effect April 2003. We had to update the power of attorney. Florida made a change in the law in November 2012, and it's recommended, not necessarily mandatory, but strongly recommend the power of attorney be updated. So that's why I always say we need to talk periodically at a minimum every three to five years, or if there's a change in family situation, just to make sure we can update those documents and make sure, again, our clients and their family are protected in every situation. All right, great. Well, this was wonderful. I learned a lot, and I think I know a fair amount too, but I learned a lot. I think our listeners will get a lot out of it. And as far as estate planners go, um, you weren't terribly boring, so that's good. I appreciate it. Very exciting. So in closing, you have any other thoughts or advice or recommendation, anything we didn't cover that you wanted to cover before we let our listeners go? One thing, and this could be a um, topic for another day, is a lot of people don't realize that if someone needs care in the home or assist living facility, there are programs that will help contribute towards the cost of care. Okay. As an example, if someone's a veteran or a widow veteran and someone's receiving care at home, the VA will contribute up to $1,500 a month towards the cost of care at home. 850 if it's a widow. If they go into an um, assisted living facility, the VA will contribute up to $2,100 a month. And then there's sometimes state programs as well. So people always think the cost upon someone's passing, but the time they really need to get an elder law attorney in, in place or talk to someone is if someone's looking to become in, incapacitated. That's great. And that's another thing, going back to the cost and hassle of going to an attorney and thinking about flawed families um, confronting your mortality. You know, but these are not small sums of money you were throwing around. And if you could get it um, access, just information to how you could get some help financially and otherwise, because you guys are immersed in this stuff, you're in a position to help clients in that way too. That's great. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining thank you me. For having me. It Appreciate was terrific, and uh, 
I think the listeners will get an awful lot of value out of this. So I want to thank Eric for joining me on today's Simply Financial podcast episode. Eric, it was great. I learned a lot. I think we gave some valuable information out to the listeners. So I appreciate you joining me. I also want to let the listeners know that I appreciate them joining us. Please check us out and subscribe to the podcast by going to iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast platforms. I will be back with you on an upcoming episode very soon. The views expressed are not necessarily the opinion of Sage Point Financial Incorporated and should not be construed directly or indirectly as an offer to buy or sell any securities mentioned herein. Investing is subject to risks, including loss of principal invested. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. No strategy can assure a profit nor protect against a loss. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon when coordinated with individual professional advice. The information being provided is strictly as a courtesy. When you link to any of the websites provided here, you are leaving this website. We make no representation as to the completeness or accuracy of information provided at those websites. Nor is the company liable for any direct or indirect technical or system issues or any consequences arising out of your access to or your use of third-party technologies websites, information, and programs made available through this website. When you access one of those websites, you assume total responsibility and risk for your use of the website you are linking to. Securities and advisory services are offered through Sage Point Financial Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC. Insurance services offered through Elliott Wealth Management, LLC, are not affiliated with Sage Point Financial. 